What a great privilege and an honor it is to, to be able to introduce our speaker for uh, this weekend uh, here at Retreat at Camp Elam. Um, so Dr. Craig Carter and his wife Bonnie are here with us. I'm thrilled because uh, I've known Dr. Carter for a good number of years now. We're both uh, fellow Canadians, um, uh, true subjects of the new king. And, uh, and so it's a privilege for me to be able to, to introduce uh, my friend, Dr. Carter, to you. So Dr. Carter taught many years at Tyndale University up in uh, just north of Toronto, uh, since retired in 2020, and now research professor of theology at Tyndale. Um, but in retirement, he's not kicking back and getting out on the uh, lakes in his canoes uh, as, uh, as much as I'm sure he would like to, uh, as he's still continuing to teach uh, all over uh, in North America and here in the States. Uh, so Dr. Carter's been teaching uh, some courses recently at Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando and uh, Midwestern out in Kansas City. Um, Dr. Carter is uh, author of a number of really important books, uh, some that have really just sort of taken off and become theological bestsellers, if you could believe it. Uh, can you get a bestseller in theology? Uh, and uh, one book that was particularly impactful for me uh, was uh, Interpreting, uh, uh, what is it? Interpreting Scripture of the Great Tradition. Uh, a really important book that has shaped a lot of the way people have been doing theology since it was uh, written uh, a few years ago. Uh, currently, he's working on uh, works in the relationship between philosophy and theology, commentary on Isaiah, and uh, you're working on a book on providence uh, as well, which is what he's here to speak to us about. So uh, let's uh, thank uh, Dr. Carter with a good round of applause as we introduce him or have him come up um, now. So welcome, sir. Well, it's really great to be here. All speakers, when they're invited to go somewhere, say that, but, but sometimes they really, really mean it, and I'm really glad to be with you today. Um, it's been such a pleasure to get to know uh, a few of you already talking, uh, and uh, there's nothing that an author likes more than to uh, go somewhere and have somebody say, I read your book, and uh, unless it's to have them say, and, I, and it really helped me. <laughs> And I've had that happen already, so it's been exciting. We are, um, we, we've been made to feel so welcome. Uh, two welcome baskets, even. Uh, not, not just one for your average visiting speaker, but two welcome baskets in our room. And you ordered special Canadian weather for us for today to make us feel at home. Everything, uh, I, I just, I don't know what more you could do to make us feel welcome. Um, I am writing a book on the doctrine of providence, and um, the reason I'm doing this is because this is a very neglected doctrine and yet a very important doctrine. The real topic that I want to address is a topic that cannot be ignored when you talk about providence and that is the problem of evil. Why do innocent people suffer? There's no question that innocent people in this world do suffer and there's no question that um, People who are very evil, who live terrible lives, live to an old age and die in their beds surrounded by family and friends, the peaceful death. And people who love God and who serve their, their, uh, their families and their communities end up dying at a young age in a painful way. Families lose loved ones. Um, why does this happen? And um, is, how can the doctrine of providence be reconciled with this? So that's what I really want to talk about, but, but um, 
problem is that you, you can't really, I can't really dive right into answering this specific question um, until I've done some things to help you change the way you look at the world. So tomorrow is actually going to be the answer. Uh, we're, today is setting up tomorrow. Um, uh, today I want to, I want to work on your sanctification. And uh, when, when you hear the word sanctification, you usually think of moral issues, um, you know, like, like rules and, and, and moral virtues. But I want to suggest that what we need, if we're going to think hard and well about the problem of evil, is a sanctified imagination. A sanctified imagination. By that I mean an imagination that sees the world as God intends it to be seen, that, that really understands what kind of world this is and who we are and what we're doing here and what's going on. Our society has been shaped by what I call the myth of Darwinism. And the myth of Darwinism is a myth that says that the, the universe is eternal, um, everything is always in flux, and basically matter is all there is. Uh, and matter gets reconfigured over time into different forms and by a random process of evolution, uh, human beings come into being and everything around us happens the way it happens just because it's, it's part of the flux and it's part of the, of the world changing as a result of this mechanical process of natural selection. And that's all that life means. And so all of the things that, that we find meaning in, love and poetry and joy and sacrifice and hope and imagination, all that is not really real. The only thing that's real is matter. And, and, and mind is just an epiphenomenon of matter. It's just a, something that, that happens as a result of matter combining in certain ways, producing something called mind. How life came to be, is, there's no explanation for that. How mind came to be, no explanation for that. How human, you human beings and, and, and what it means to really be human, how this all came to be, it, there's no explanation for it. It's just taken for granted as being the way it is. And when you think that way, you have an unsanctified imagination. Uh, we have a, a little Class B motorhome, a camper van at home, and we, um, we have a, a little gauge on the wall that tells us how much is in the various tanks. The, so there's a the black tank, uh, the holding tank, where the, the water from the toilet goes. And it was showing two-thirds full all the time, even when we just dumped. Okay, we just dumped it and, and everything is empty, but the gauge still shows. We went to the RV place. We said, what's going on? Uh, how can we get this fixed? And they, they sold us some, some chemicals that we put in the toilet along with a whole bunch of hot water. And then we drove the van for a few hours. Then we stopped and we dumped everything. And what happened was that this chemical cleaned out the sludge that was affecting the gauge that was giving the reading um, for the filling of the tank. And the myth of Darwinism is like sludge that has crept into our minds and it has caused us to, to give a false reading. We don't really see the world as it really is. What I want to talk to you about this morning and this afternoon is reality, the real world, 
Not the world that you see filtered through the myth of Darwinism and meaningless materialism, but rather the world as it actually is. That's what we find in Psalm 104 and 105. And so we're going to look at these two psalms this morning, 104, this afternoon, 105, and then we'll be prepared to dive into the question of evil tomorrow and give it an answer. So let's look at Psalm 104. And uh, this, this message this morning is basically, uh, I, when I come to the verse that I'm taking as my text, I'm going to take, and you've probably never heard a sermon before, on an exclamation mark. But my text this morning is the exclamation mark at the end of verse 24. So watch for that. Bless the Lord, O my soul. My, o Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. He sets the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took to flight. The mountains rose. The valley sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so they may not cover again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for men to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, to make oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nest. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. He has made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows its time for setting. You made darkness and it is night. When all the beasts of the forest creep about, the young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. O Lord, how manifold are your works! In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things, both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open their hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide their, your face, they are dismayed. And when you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in all his works, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to him. 
for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth and the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. What I want you to notice about this psalm is that the psalmist has an emotional reaction to nature. In sanctifying our imagination, it is important to come to love the good and to hate evil. And loving the good is an affection. It's not just strictly an intellectual activity. It's not just us saying, I believe the following six propositions to be true. It is to be moved in the depths of our soul by that truth that we confess and to see this world as God sees it and to be thankful and joyful and overwhelmed and grateful and happy about it. The doctrine of providence presupposes that we live in this kind of world and that we know that we live in this kind of world. A key verse, of course, in the doctrine is the one that Paul writes in Romans 8, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. That's what we're supposed to believe as Christians. And yet it's hard with the sludge of secular materialistic worldviews clogging up our, our affections. It's hard for us to love our lives sometimes. It's hard for us to love the world sometimes. O Lord, how manifold are your works. The psalmist is just overwhelmed by by the the diversity, the beauty, just the, the complexity of nature. And the psalmist believes that God has made this world. He's made it according to his wisdom. And the earth is full of his creatures that he is now presently taking care of. There's an old hymn, this is my father's world. And and to my listening ears, all nature sings and round me sings, rings the music of the spheres. If you have read C.S. Lewis, you might notice that last line, the music of the spheres. We'll say more about that. This is my father's world. I rest me in the thought of rocks and trees, of skies and seas, his hands the wonders wrought. This is my father's world. The birds their carols raise, the morning, night, the lily white declare their maker's praise. This is my father's world. He shines in all that's fair. All nature sings and round me rings the music of the spheres. So this is a hymn that talks about the world of nature as our home. Do we see the world of nature as our home? Well, medieval Christians did. Medieval Christians saw the universe as the direct creation of God, as designed by God, and as reflecting the glory of God. The music of the spheres refers to an idea that was central to the cosmology of the medieval period. The stars and the planets were regarded in that era as moving in a prearranged harmony that is musical. 
And the music of the spheres or heavenly bodies is the musical score created by God in which they move in perfectly executed sequences so as to create a pattern. Nature is not just random stuff happening. It's a world that is, that is moving in a sequence that forms a pattern that originates in the mind of the creator. And this idea that the universe is perfect, orderly, carefully designed to reflect the beauty of the God who made it has largely been lost in modern times. Modern man does not behold or delight in the music of the spheres because he does not believe that the universe is designed by God. For modern man, nature is randomness, chance, meaningless change with no purpose or design. The Darwinian picture of nature is that of a bloody, meaningless struggle for survival. Modern man may admire a mountain or be amazed at a starry night, but he does not see it as pointing to God or as beautiful and harmonious. This is because modern man is not a Christian. But modern man is not even a pagan. Even a pre-Christian pagan would have more respect for nature than the modern materialist does. For modern man, nature is nothing but raw material for humans to exploit. It is not our home. It's a hostile wilderness that must be conquered. The modern world is one of scientific facts, cold, hard, measurable facts. In his little book, The Abolition of Man, C.S. Lewis writes about modern man, and this is how he describes modern man. He says, he is a mere trousered ape who has never been able to conceive of the Atlantic as anything more than so many million tons of cold salt water. Notice that Lewis calls modern man a trousered ape, that is, a, an animal with pretensions. And notice what he, what he points to as the, the failure or the weakness or the deficiency of modern man. It's a deficiency of imagination. In the, in the passage in the book, he's talking about some poetry that describes the Atlantic Ocean as a, as a place of adventure and discovery. And then he says, you can't, modern people don't think of it that way because their imagination is truncated by their scientific materialism. So all they can see when they look at the ocean, it's not limitless possibilities, not the provision of God for his world, not the creation of all the sea creatures by God in harmony. No, what they see is raw material to be exploited, material to be used for whatever human will desires. Lewis tried more than any other modern author in the 20th century, any other author in the 20th century, to point us back to the medieval period, back to people who understood nature in the way that is described in the phrase, the music of the spheres. That's what Lewis was trying to do in all of his books and his fiction, his nonfiction. He was trying to educate our imagination, to help us to develop sanctified imaginations, to help us see reality for what it really is, to help us understand this world as God's creation in our home. You know, a homeowner usually takes care of his or her home. This is one of the great advantages to having a society with many people owning their own homes. You know, you, you, you 
you care for it, you, you, you take care of the yard, you, re, you do repairs, you do maintenance, you decorate it, you, you look after it. But the modern attitude to nature is like a man who keeps on cutting boards off of the walls of his house as to use as firewood until the, the holes appear and the rain comes in and, and the wood rots and the house collapses. The Christian doctrine of providence teaches us to see the universe as our home. And it comes out of passages like Psalm 104, in which we see a conception of nature as the work of our loving Heavenly Father. And I want us to notice three things about this psalm today, about providence here, that providence is a continuation of creation, it's a preservation of creation, and it's a revelation of God's glory in creation. Now, any alert reader of Scripture... And we should all strive to become alert readers of Scripture. And we should be trying to see connections where early, later Scriptures refer to earlier Scriptures. And anybody who reads Psalm 104 is going to see many echoes of Genesis chapter 1. So in verse 2 of Psalm 104, the light of day 1 is mentioned. In verses 2 to 4, God stretches out the heavens, the work of day 2. Verses 5 to 9 describe the dividing of the waters to expose the dry land, which was done on day 3. In verses 14 to 18, we see the rest of the work of day 3 described as God causes the vegetation and the trees to grow and flourish. And then in verses 19 to 24, we see the great light keepers, the sun and the moon, which were created on day 4. In verses 25 and 26, we see a description of the great sea creatures God made on day 5. And then in 21 to 24, the psalmist describes the creation of land animals and man plus their food in verses 27 to 30, the work of day 6. And so Psalm 104 takes us back to creation. Psalm 104 takes us back to the six days. But there's something funny about Psalm 104, and that is that you notice that it's all written in the present tense. God's doing these things right now. He's giving food to the animals. He's making the sun to shine and so forth. And so the doctrine of providence is describing the ongoing work of creation. Now we can make a mistake in two directions here. As usual in theology, it's a narrow path and you can fall off either side. We don't want to reduce creation to providence. We don't want to say that there isn't a special work of creation that is distinct. Creation is bringing things into being out of nothing. Providence, however, is God's continued upholding of the creation in existence. But what we need to understand, the other way we can go wrong is to think that creation is just what happened way back then for six days at the beginning of the world and ever since God has been uninvolved. Ever since the world has just been on its own. So we don't want to to conflate creation and and providence. We want to see them as distinct. But what unifies them is that they're both the work of the creator God. They're both the work of God. And God is just as involved in providence as he was in creation. God is just as active involved in, in, in... Why do people find babies fascinating? Why is... Why do people say when a newborn is presented to them for the first time, say a grandmother uh, seeing a, a firstborn child, 
Why do they keep saying it's a miracle? I mean, don't they know about the birds and the bees? Like, don't they know how babies come to be? But they say it's a miracle. When God created Adam and Eve, out of, when he created Adam out of the dust of the ground and Eve out of the rib of Adam, it was a miracle. And most people would say, well, yeah, that was a miracle. But the birth of a newborn child is another kind of miracle. They're both actions of God. We need to understand that God did not stop working just because he stopped creating out of nothing. God is still at work in this world. But the modern worldview says nature is just on its own. It's just, it's just, it's just eternal. It, just, it's, it exists by itself and it moves itself. And, and really it's all a mystery because why should there be anything at all if there's no God? Why should there be an emotion if God is not the first cause of the world. Where, where does motion and energy and ability to move, where does this come from? Where does life come from? It, it, even in the myth of Darwinism, there was a time before there was any life. Think of Darwin's little warm pond and the chemicals floating around in the little soup. There was no life. And then all of a sudden, there was a single-celled organism that was alive. How can life come from non-life? Well, the psalm says life does not come from non-life. Life comes from God who is life itself. Providence is a continuation of God's work. Secondly, sorry, my buttons are not working. It's actually because I'm impatient. So the second thing we learn from Psalm 104 is that create, providence is the preservation of creation. Now, God is the first cause of the universe. And he caused the heavens and the earth by bringing them into existence, but he continues to hold them in existence, and he continues to uphold them in such a way that they can, each thing in the universe continues to be what it is. Okay. Creation happened during the six days, but providence is happening all around us right now. There is a true sense in which it's God that provides the food for the animals. It's God that makes the springs gush forth with water. It's God that causes the baby to be born. How does God do this? He does it by being the first cause and by upholding the nature of each thing in existence. Now, I want you to really concentrate because here I'm going, to go, I'm going to teach you basic metaphysics. Metaphysics is a big scary word. It has something to do with philosophy. Okay, here is the metaphysical explanation of providence in a paragraph. Okay, you ready? Each created thing has a nature. A thing is what it is because it has that nature. The nature of a thing participates in the idea in the mind of God. Before anything existed, God had an idea of it and that he brought it into existence in correspondence with that idea. And this is how come you can have a changing thing in a world of flux that remains what it is. So at one time, you were a zygote. You were a, a fertilized egg. 
and you were a fetus, and then you were a newborn, and then you were a infant, and then you were a child, and then you were a teenager, and then you were an adult, and then you were middle-aged, and then you're old and decrepit like me, and then you eventually are a corpse. But, you're, but when they put your name on the headstone, it's the same name that you've had all the way through that process. You are the same human. How come you can be the same human when you've changed so much? You've gone from a tiny thing to a big thing. How can that be? Because you have a nature. And because God has given you a nature, and your nature participates in the idea, in the mind of God, and so all horses participate in the, in the universal idea of horse in the mind of God. And even though individual horses come into existence, and they live, and they die, and then other horses come into existence... Horses are still horses. And horses were horses 3,000 years ago, and horses will be horses 3,000 years from now. Because a horse today has the same nature as the horses of the past and the future. And nature, the nature of a thing is what makes it act the way it does. Things act according to their natures. Each thing acts in a way that expresses its nature. So if you take a heavy rock and you let go of it, it falls to the ground. Now, when we talk about why it falls to the ground, we invoke the law of gravity, a scientific law. But what is a scientific law? If you want to confuse a secularist, ask him how you can have a law without a lawgiver. Because we actually invented the idea of scientific laws back in the time when, Christian, when our culture believed in God. We believed God was the lawgiver. And then we dropped God out of the picture, but we kept the laws. Why should we do that? Why do we have laws if there's no lawgiver? Why is there science if there's no God? Well, the reason the rock acts that way is if it acts according to its nature. Part of the nature of a rock is for it to be heavier. Than, than the gravitational attraction of the planet. And so it falls. This is why they don't float up into the sky. This is why um, horses don't live in the ocean. This is why rain is always wet. God governs the world by his providence by preserving the natures of things with which he created them. Darwinian evolution says that everything's in flux. Everything's changing. Darwinian evolution says that, that nothing stays the same. And yet, natures do stay the same. If Darwinian evolution is true, then there really is no such thing as human being. There's just the current uh, expression of the evolved animal called human that exists today, but humans might not exist in 10, 10 million years or 5 million years or whatever because everything's in flux even, even well, Darwinians don't really have the category nature, but what we call a, a thing's nature is itself for them in flux, so it's changing. Well, the Bible teaches us that God creates things and he creates their nature, but he doesn't just create it and then let it change or devolve. He keeps it in existence. God keeps horses being horses and chairs being chairs and, and everything being what it is. Well, if this is true, the universe is very different than the way they told us it was. If this is true, if what I'm telling you is true, then, then the world has a stability that is real and unchanging 
and it reflects the mind of God. Thirdly, this, this uh, psalm teaches us that providence is a revelation of God's glory. Providence is not only a preservation of that creation, but we learn that the greatness, the majesty, and the beauty of the creation reflects the glory of God. Now, if you have never camped out under the stars and looked up at the night sky and gazed in wonder at it, then I do feel sorry for you. People have been doing that for thousands and thousands of years, and they'll do it for as long as humans live on this planet. It never ceases to amaze us as humans to gaze on the handiwork of the creator. The world of nature is full of wonder. Waterfalls, magnificent sunsets, colorful birds, the breathtaking fall colors, the majestic mountains, the vast oceans, sunshine on a woman's hair, the sound of a babbling brook, Gerard Manley Hopkins wrote, Glory be to God for dappled things, for skies of couple color as a brinded cow, for rose moles and all stipple upon trout that swim, fresh fire coal chestnut falls, finches wings, landscape plotted and pierced, fold, fallow and plow, and all trades, their gear and tackle and trim. All things counter, original, spare, strange. Whatever is fickled, freckled, who knows how. With swift, slow, sweet, sour, a dazzle, dim, he fathers forth whose beauty is past change. Praise him. Show me a person who does not appreciate the beauty of nature, and I'll show you a shriveled up shell of a human being. Children love nature. They're fascinated by bugs and flowers and frogs and baby animals in the night sky. They love to get dirty and climb trees and swim in the lake. The last summer, my best day of last summer, was the day that I spent swimming in the lake with my grandchildren. Why does nature affect us emotionally? Why does it draw out our affections, our love? Because God is speaking to us through nature. He reveals himself as the one who provides for our needs, who gives us the beauty that our souls crave, and he demonstrates his power. In our adult Sunday school class a while back, we studied Psalm 29, in which God, God the psalmist uses the, the thunderstorm as a metaphor for the power of God. And so nature becomes a kind of test. What do you see? when you look at nature. Do you see, with Alfred Lord Tennyson's famous phrase, nature red in tooth and claw? Or do you see, in the phrase of David, the sweet singer of Israel, the glory of God, the heavens declaring the glory of God? What you see reveals your relationship to God. If you see the home that your loving Heavenly Father created for you, that means you're his child. 
When we read Psalm 104, what hits us most, I think, or at least what hits me, is the psalmist's emotional reaction to creation. The most important thing, I think, about this psalm is the central verse. Uh, this verse, verse 24. O Lord, how manifold are your works. Now, if you know any biblical Hebrew, you know that they don't have exclamation points like we do. So that's a, that's a translator's interpretation of what that line is saying in Hebrew. And it's the right interpretation. The translator is correct to put in that exclamation point. In fact, the, the, the translator would be well advised to put in a big exclamation point or maybe even two or three exclamation points because, because the whole psalm is the psalmist just being overwhelmed by the manifold works of God. It's like you, you think you've seen it all and then you, 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 there's always more. We've never been to the Rocky Mountains before and we are just amazed at the beauty and the grandeur of these mountains. And there are other places on this earth that we haven't been to that also have their own wonders to share. That exclamation point expresses wonder and awe and humility and love and gratitude and respect and reverence and thankfulness. And that is how we should respond to the world that God has made. And friends, until we respond that way, our, our imaginations are not sanctified enough yet. We're not ready to hear the answer to the problem of evil. We're not ready to hear what the Bible has to teach us about why evil exists in this, in this beautiful world. First, we have to experience the world as our loving Heavenly Father home made for us. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. O oh Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Let us pray. <laughs> o oh Lord God, how we thank you for making this world with all of its wonder and all of its splendor and all of its beauty. And thank you for making us, your creatures, made in your image, able to speak to you and able to hear you speak to us. Lord, thank you for this. Thank you for the great privilege of placing us here in your world. Thank you that you have revealed yourself through creation and through scripture. And we thank you for this psalmist and for the words that he wrote many years ago that still speak to us because you haven't changed and your world hasn't changed. Human nature hasn't changed. Oh God, we praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>